0: Hello folks, it's me again, brewing up and giving you the Antarctic good oil. In this case, by gabbling about the local geography. If you're interested enough to listen to this, you've probably already got some idea what Antarctica is. But I'd like to cover the basics, so we're all on the same page when some of the implications of the geology, biology and climate are discussed in later episodes. Unlike the Arctic, which comprises ice resting on an ocean, Antarctica is a landmass covered in ice. The modern iteration of the continent is what was left over after the breakup of first Pangaea and later Gondwana. These ancient supercontinental landmasses were torn apart by the movement of tectonic plates. These crustal processes likely driven by temperature gradient currents in Earth's molten core, themselves a result of residual heat from the formation of the planet, sustained by the heat released in the radioactive decay of heavy unstable elements, were first posited by Alfred Wegener as continental drift in 1912, and laughed at by everyone else for 40 odd years. That such a fundamental concept of our planet's structure was considered laughable by experts for more than a third of the period humans have been exploring the Antarctic, is a reminder that the continent was only discovered after the scientific process and the perspectives and language coalesced were already well established. This fact will have tremendous bearing on the events to be discussed. Geologists and earth scientists still have a long way to go in fully explaining the processes involved, but the short version is that a very large landmass we now refer to as Pangaea broke up into what we call Gondwana in the south and Laurasia in the north. Gondwana broke up in turn, forming the bases of Australia and South America, and a large mass of Precambrian granite which moved south, becoming the East Antarctic Shield. This was added to by sedimentation and volcanoes, and the Transantarctic Mountains were pushed up when it came into contact with the Pacific Crustal Plate. Western Antarctica is geologically distinct from this structure and consists of mountains formed by the tectonic upthrust of marine sediments and volcanoes. As the whole shebang headed south on the Tectonic Express, ice ages came and went in rhythm with the changing atmospheric processes, and plants and animals in turn died or were forced out of large areas by encroaching glaciers later migrating back in from the still attached land masses that would later become the bases of the modern continents we know and love, to recolonize the habitat made available by the retreating glaciers. One by one the other continents split off and took up their current positions, the last to break away being what we now know as South America. This caused a dramatic shift Beyond the loss of migratory route and recolonization mechanism for organisms. With no land mass getting in the way, currents that encircled the entire planet took hold in what we call the Southern Ocean. This circumpolar circulation established a strong boundary oceanographers refer to as the Antarctic Convergence. The temperature difference between the water bodies from either side prevents effective mixing, and the disjunct in temperature, salinity, oxygen and nutrient concentrations can be stark. This boundary is mirrored in atmospheric processes, with circumpolar winds ensuring Antarctica remains insulated against warm air from the north, locking the continent into a long-term local ice age, in spite of the relatively balmy weather the rest of the planet has enjoyed for the last 10,000 years. The local flora and fauna died, leaving their echoes in the rocks, and leaving lichens and a few insects ruling the land where dinosaurs once roamed. That's far too simple a telling of a story that played out gradually over billions of years, but the end result was a landmass centred on the southern pole of planetary rotation, isolated from the rest of the world by the circumpolar current, and locked in ice. Weather-wise, the region is dominated by an annual shift from full-time daylight full-time night. Anything south of 66 degrees south experiences at least one 24-hour period without sunlight and one 24-hour period without sunset once a year. The further south you go, the longer the period of extended summer day and extended winter night time. The long polar night and the high albedo or energy reflectiveness of the ice and snow consolidate the hold the cold has on the region, so even when the sun shines full time, the area doesn't get warm enough for vascular plants to get a fresh toehold on the continent, the mosses on the Antarctic Peninsula being the forests of the land. The cold gyres of air circling above the continent, isolating the local climate from goings on further north, ensure any airborne moisture that finds its way into the area falls in frozen form. Snow crystals fall, lighter than the downiest feathers, but they have considerable weight when joined by thousands of years of their fellow snowflakes. Snow, under the weight of more snow, will squeeze down. Air gaps compress and the snow becomes a gap-free solid glaciologists call fern. Fern is the basic building block of a glacier. In the case of the polar dome, the fern has accumulated to a depth of four kilometres. Gravity acts on this huge mass of frozen water, depressing the terrestrial crust under it, pushing the land down into the molten core of the planet until the weight of fluid displaced matches the weight of the continent and its ice load and the system reaches neutral buoyancy. Archimedes' principle in rock form. If the ice ever melted completely, the weight loss would cause the rock to float higher than its current depressed position, a process called isostatic rebound. Gravity's second effect on the ice is to make it flow downhill as glaciers. Glacial flow is, well, glacial. But when ice 4 kilometres thick moves even a small distance, it has significant abrasive power. Anywhere an ice sheet moves over rock, friction at the interface causes ablation. The ice erodes the rock. The same is also true in reverse, but as the ice melts at a lower temperature than the rock, the effects are only readily evident when a glacier retreats and the smooth, clean faces of the eroded mountains and newly formed valleys are revealed. Glaciers eventually reach the edges of the continent, and once at sea level, there is no more downhill gradient for gravity to push them down. But the ice behind them forces them off the continent and out to sea. As the sea floor falls away, the ice reaches its neutral buoyancy point and the glaciers become floating ice tongues. Chunks break off the ice tongues, becoming ice bergs. The bergs may ground on shallow seafloor features or become trapped in embayments, but will eventually float free of the continental shelf and head north to warmer waters where they gradually melt. The silt, mud, sand, gravel, rock, cobbles and boulders a glacier collects in its journey from the polar dome to the sea, are carried away from the continent in its berg spawn, and fall to the seafloor as they are unlocked by the melting water. I once met a base technician who proudly boasted that he carried a pocket of sand and rocks from wherever he'd most recently been working to wherever he was headed, to be deposited in the hope of one day confusing a geologist in their attempts to explain the history of a particular region. What I found entertaining in spite Milligan's ambition to be buried in a washing machine to confuse future archaeologists, I found extremely annoying in this guy. Though this may have been because he was annoying on many levels. that his puny efforts will add little extra noise to a system already lousy with geological hubbub. The benthos of the Southern Ocean is littered with the erratic geological signals resulting from the chaotic meanderings of billions of rafts of ice over hundreds of millions of years. Glacial ice is joined at sea level by sea ice, frozen seawater. The surface area of the continent effectively doubles each winter as the sea surface freezes, increasing the albedo of areas formerly able to absorb light and warmth. As the water freezes, salt is forced out of solution, so the sea ice is fresh water and the underlying liquid water is extra salty. Fresh water freezes at zero degrees Celsius, Salt in solution will depress the freezing point of water to negative 2 degrees Celsius. You can freeze salt water, but you have to get it down to about negative 27 degrees Celsius to do it. And while these temperatures do occur in parts of Antarctica, the process which sees salt water turn fresh and then freeze kicks off in the far warmer conditions experienced on the Antarctic coastal margin. When water drops below 4 degrees Celsius, the movement of individual water molecules is slowed to the point that hydrogen bonds between the molecules get the opportunity to push them further apart. The upshot being that water colder than 4 degrees Celsius is less dense than water warmer than 4 degrees Celsius, and the colder it gets, the more the hydrogen bonds influence the water density. Ice is only about 9 tenths as dense as liquid water, so ice is positively buoyant in water to the extent sea ice and icebergs float with their uppermost 10% clear of the water surface. The hypersaline water generated by the formation of sea ice is slightly more dense than the standard seawater surrounding the rest of the continent, so the annual growth of sea ice around the continent drives circumpolar vertical currents. The dense, salty water sinks into the southern ocean basins, carrying with it the oxygen and nutrient loads of the coastal waters. The currents extend north, along the seafloors of the world's oceans, surfacing in the tropics in a conveyor belt action, delivering the life-supporting chemicals to the areas of the world in which they are naturally most depleted. Who to thunk making ice cubes in the south could drive mid-ocean productivity half a world away? Annual sea ice tends not to get much thicker than two metres, and even sea ice trapped in an embayment for several years tends not to get more than 5 metres thick because the ice insulates the seawater below it from further energy loss. Sea ice melts during the summer months, with large pools or polynyas forming on the surface, sometimes trickling down through cracks caused by swell or tides to refreeze as spectacular stalactites as the fresh water reaches the supercooled seawater below. As the sea ice thins, it grows weak, and the mechanical action of tides and waves break it up at the margins. Offshore winds also contribute to the dramatic summer shrinking of the continent's surface as the weakened sea ice can blow out to sea in large sheets and entire bays and reaches can be cleared of ice entirely in the course of one good storm. As sea ice leaves an area it takes with it any animals on it which isn't a problem for penguins and seals but has led to several human deaths. Seawater below the sea ice remains at an almost constant minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, providing a cold but consistent environment for marine life, with less diurnal and monthly variability than most other coastal waters around the world. Besides the big annual shift from day to night regime, the environmental conditions below Antarctic coastal waters are stable to the point that large, complex, high biomass assemblages occur, with the same general species richness filling given niches at all longitudes around the continent. Anchor ice is one Antarctic environmental pressure that temperate and tropical marine organisms don't have to deal with. While ice is buoyant in water, it doesn't always form at the surface. The crystals will form anywhere the temperature gets low enough. Sometimes an ice crystal will nucleate on a seafloor feature... Ice begets ice, and an initial crystal will quickly grow, forming its own water microclimate and acting as the nucleus for the next layer of ice, which acts as the nucleus for the next layer, and so on. Anchor ice can be astonishingly beautiful, with interlocking facets of crystals building on each other until the buoyancy of the whole mass overcomes either the connection between the ice and the seafloor or the weight of the object it's attached to. The ice, or the ice in the rock it formed on, float up to join the sea ice at the water's surface. Sometimes this takes marine life on the rock or ensnared in the ice with it. So sea stars, sponges and ascidians are sometimes entrained in the sea ice where they starve. The newly cleared real estate is available for the recruitment of newly settled invertebrates. But the slow pace of planktonic development and of primary and secondary productivity in the system make this a slow process so in areas where anchor ice can form, species able to hold on in the face of the anchor ice or able to wriggle free when it forms on them are selected for. Another process absent from temperate and tropical marine systems is iceberg scouring. Icebergs have contacted the seafloor, ploughing aside all sediment and marine organisms in waters as much as 400 metres deep, though such berg-mediated sediment turnover is more regular in shallower depths. Life in the cold waters has a chemical handbrake, with all physiological processes occurring at a snail's pace compared with their warmer water equivalents. With organisms taking a long time to grow to maturity and reproducing slowly, everything is stayed and orderly, until, that is, a billion tonne iceberg ploughs through the neighbourhood and everything is reset to ecological zero. As above, so below, the Antarctic is dominated by ice. Primary productivity, the transformation of sunlight energy into chemical energy by photosynthetic organisms, is restricted to the summer months in Antarctic waters. South of the circle, macroalgae can't get enough sunlight to take hold, and all production comes from phytoplankton. After the darkness of winter, there is a lag phase in productivity as the diatom and dinoflagellate population breed up. But come December the gin-clear waters around Antarctica turn into a plankton soup. Visibility drops to almost nil as the biomass in the shallow waters ramps up to some of the highest levels in any waters anywhere in the world. The conversion of sunlight into plankton is astronomical and the southern ocean breathes more oxygen into the atmosphere during the summer plankton bloom than all the forests in the world put together. Phytoplankton is food for filter-feeding benthic mollusks and for zooplankton, most notably crustaceans in the order Euphalciacea, or krill. Krill use their filamentous forelimbs to comb phytoplankton out of the water, turning huge volumes of phytoplankton into zooplankton, in turn providing the necessary animal protein to fuel filter-feeding organisms raising from sponges to whales. Usually, energy flows from producers to apex predators via a series of intermediate steps, with the associated entropy at each stage bleeding usable energy from the system. But the phytoplankton-to-krill and krill-to-whale food chain short-circuits a lot of this loss by only having two intermediate steps, making the change from sunlight to whale meat in the southern ocean one of the most efficient energy transfers in the living world. The high productivity of the shallows of the southern ocean was one of the first drawcards humanity paid attention to, to the detriment of the whale and seal populations, but more on that matter later. As in deeper waters the world over, the aphotic zones around Antarctica rely on the surface water productivity for energy, but the shallows also receive no direct energy input from the sun during the winter months, so entire ecosystems have to store enough nutrients to survive for long periods without replenishment. In many areas... Seal and whale shit might be the only additional nutrient input for more than six months, and organisms faced by such long periods of austerity are not choosy when it comes to tucking into mammal excrement. There are no crabs in Antarctic waters, and no intermediate-sized fish, their having been wiped out somewhere in the history of progressing and receding ice. Where the crabs have been replaced by other branches of the crustacean family tree... Antarctic fish are all evolved from an evolutionary bottleneck of one family which either survived the glacial maxima or recolonized after its end the Notothenoidea. Notothenoids have evolved an antifreeze protein in their blood. While ice crystals can form in their bodies, the glycoproteins adsorb to the proto crystals and prevent further growth. The crystal and its protein coat, later being processed out of the bloodstream by the kidneys and expelled in the fish's urine. This neat party trick allows nodothenoids to survive in temperatures and even lie in direct contact with ice crystals, where any other fish would be snap frozen into a sad, meat popsicle. The other cool thing, literally and figuratively, about nodothenoids is that their blood lacks haemoglobin. Living in cold waters, their respiratory needs are sufficiently low and Antarctic waters sufficiently rich in oxygen that they can respire efficiently without an energetically expensive respiratory pigment protein, and given that they have to manufacture the large and energy-expensive antifreeze proteins, this saving is all to the good. Sea ice acts as a barrier to air-breathing marine life, as whales and most seals cannot dive long enough to safely swim more than a couple of hundred metres from the ice edge. Only Waddell seals the 400 kilograms of blubber named after the sealer and explorer James Weddell, have the diving ability to live almost exclusively on and under large expanses of sea ice. It's a hard life being born, suckling for six weeks, and then having to dive beneath metres of sea ice in near-freezing water, swimming hundreds of metres down to where the Antarctic cod live, to catch a fish and return with it to the surface to feed and recharge the blood with oxygen, in small holes in the ice but the advantage of this hard lifestyle is an almost complete absence of predators. Local shark populations did not survive the ice ages, and populations from further north haven't recolonized Antarctic waters. Leopard seals and orca can't dive long enough to safely hunt under sea ice far from the ice edge, so Adel seals can hunt and breed unmolested so long as they don't go near the open sea. They do need to breathe, though, so any hole in the sea ice is hot property, figuratively speaking, in the Weddell seal world, and they will fight viciously over breathing and hauling outrights. Occasionally, even their astounding breath-hold skills fail them. Drowned Weddell seals make a seafloor feast most benthic fauna won't experience even once in a lifetime, putting the paltry nutrient value of seal shit to shame. Penguins exist in the Antarctic because bears don't. While the word Antarctic does refer to an absence of bears, this term was coined in reference to a constellation, and not to the actual absence of actual bears on the continent. But it is true that no polar bears are to be found in southern polar climes. With no terrestrial fauna bigger than springtails, flightless birds are safe to rest and nest on the coastal margins. Anyone who thinks Antarctica might make a suitable refuge for polar bears as their habitat diminishes in the Arctic will then have to solve the problem of where to resettle all the penguins put at risk by introducing large, efficient predators to the surface habitats. This absence of terrestrial predators makes the starvation and cannibalism you find in histories of exploration in the Arctic largely absent in the exploits I'll be discussing in future episodes. If you're near the coast, you can walk right up to a seal or penguin and club them to death, without them even registering your presence as a threat, putting you in possession of meat and oil, people would and have, killed for in dire circumstances at the other end of the earth. Seal meat, though unpalatable, can suffice to keep people alive, and has done through entire southern winters, providing enough calories, protein and vitamins, so long as it's not overcooked, to stave off starvation and scurvy. Their blubber can be used as fuel for simple but smelly and smoky stoves, providing heat enough to cook the meat and melt the water needed to keep people alive albeit fairly bored on the culinary front, and covered in blubber soot. Besides being cold itself, and helping maintain the local ice age by reflecting the sun's energy when it's available, ice poses other problems for humans keen to spend their time south of the circle. Crevasses are cracks in a glacier where the ice river has tried to turn a corner or negotiate a changing gradient, and failed. The hard ice doesn't bend well, so cracks form under the resulting torsion, tension and compression. Sometimes obvious, sometimes covered by bridges of treacherously deceptive snow, crevasses can spoil even the sunniest Antarctic day, and many people and sled dogs have died in their icy moors. As if a fall into empty space and a consequent impact were not enough, many crevasses taper to such a fine point that even a short fall can lead to a horrible death. As the crevasse walls crush first the air and then the life out of unwitting accelerants fortunately for the maritime focused such as myself crevasses only occur on glaciers and therefore only affect people inclined to climb inclines those of us working at sea level are far more likely to die from falling through a crack in the sea ice or making our own crack in thin sea ice and ending up in the sea where the cold water will quickly sap our energy and our downfilled clothing will weigh us down and drown us, to the heartfelt, or at least the salemic fluid space-filled, joy of the benthic denizens. Spotting crevasses and sea ice cracks, and safely traversing areas in which they occur, forms a major component in the preparations for any competent Antarctic operation. Sea ice, when pushed against a coast or an iceberg by wind or tidal current, becomes distorted, ...buckling into the tortured sculptures known as pressure ice. The peaks of pressure ice... ...sometimes rising many metres above the surrounding pack... ...can block access to vehicles and sleds... ...while the ice below is fractured into new and exciting cracks... ...down which to fall to your cold-soaked hypoxic death. Pressure ice is easy to spot and therefore easy to avoid... ...if you are travelling across the sea ice surface... ...but it is less so if you are in a ship caught in the pack. Ice, like rust never sleeps, and the sustained force of ice pressing against a hull has sent many ships to the bottom. Sastrugi are the wind-sculpted shapes formed in surface snow. Small sastrugi are an interesting addition to the texture of a landscape, but the larger forms are a serious impediment to movement, making travel by tracked vehicle uncomfortable, or I should say, more uncomfortable, and sled hauling difficult to impossible. What else do I need to mention here? Catabatic winds form when cold air starts falling downhill, so unless there's something to get in their way, they just get faster and faster and stronger and stronger. So in areas where air movement has a straight line from the polar plateau to the coast, frighteningly strong windstorms can spring up with almost no warning. The oblique angle at which radiation from the sun hits the earth near the poles causes spectacular displays of aurora in the night sky, with electrons in the upper atmosphere being excited to a higher energy state by the solar wind and then releasing the energy again as light. The hole in the ozone layer was first discovered above the Antarctic. In spite of the reduced use of chlorinated halocarbon compounds such as CFCs in industrial processes and household products, the hole above Antarctica still exists, spinning in the upper atmosphere eddy resulting from the circumpolar winds caused by the circumpolar currents in the sea. As of 2012, The largest extent of the hole was recorded in September 2006, with almost the entire continent and a third of the southern ocean affected by the diminished protection from UV radiation. Sunburn should be the least of your worries when you're trying not to freeze to death, but exposed skin will quickly catch a damaging dose of UV light unless appropriate slip-slop-slap protocol is adhered to, and with so many other factors already conspiring to kill you, it's best not to let slip on such an easily countered problem and allow another hit to your fitness to get past your goalie. The dry air means that anything flammable will burn readily, and any process able to generate static electricity will build up a charge very quickly. And I almost forgot, Antarctica is home to more astounding statistics than any other landmass on the planet, so be careful where you step as you may find yourself up to your waist in percentages and comparisons to football fields and Olympic swimming pools before you're it. This episode was made with feedback from the irreverent Mr Black and Robert DeGraw in mind, and I think it is all the better for their suggestions. Very grateful, fellas. Till next time, take care and appreciate your coffee. Cheerio.